The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. The scripture reading for this morning is from Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voices of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the land, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. You may be seated. Thank you, Callie. I told her it was the kind of passage you got to go big on. You can't just, worthy is the lamb. And she did it. I'm proud of her. Thank you, Callie. <clears throat> We're starting a new sermon series this morning. Worship, what is it and why does it matter? We had finished the book of Esther and very soon we'll be in uh, Palm Sunday and Easter. So just... Between that and another new sermon series, we wanted to talk about the importance of worship, what it is and why we do it. You grew up in the church or you spend much time around Christians, it's a word that gets thrown around all the time, but it's not always exactly clear what it is that we mean. We think it's to think highly of something or to sing to something, but what does it really mean? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Specifically, why would we do it? Why would we worship? That's what we'll talk about this morning. 
before we do that, I'm going to pull a Ben Hooper and ask you to close your eyes. I want you to remember the greatest day of your life. Maybe it was your wedding day. Maybe it was the arrival of your first or fourth and fifth children. Maybe it was senior awards night. Maybe it was hitting the big shot at the game. Maybe it was a really encouraging talk with a friend. But I want you to take a minute and remind yourself of the greatest moment you can remember. With your eyes still closed, I want you to transition in your mind and I want you to remember as much as you can the worst day you can remember. Maybe it was when your parents sat you down and told you that they were getting a divorce. Maybe it was the loss of a baby or a doctor telling you that you couldn't have babies. Maybe it was a breakup and sort of has ripped your life apart. Maybe it was not getting into a school when you had worked 18 years of your life to get into it. But I want you to think for a second and remember the worst day of your life. You can open your eyes if you'd like. The reason that I have you do that little exercise is because I think for most of us, life is about having more great moments than it is having sad moments. Ultimately, life will have been worth it if the happy moments, the victorious moments, the beautiful moments outnumber the sad and heavy moments. This scene that we have in Revelation is this moment in time, which is sort of the end of all things, and yet it's also the beginning of all things in the new heavens and the new earth, and everyone's there. There are creatures and angels and people, millions of angels as far as the eye can see, and it's as if we've all come to this one moment to see If it was worth it, if our good moments outnumbered our bad moments, don't you have that sense inside of you where you're wondering, I surely hope there are some more good moments to outweigh all these bad moments, all these bad memories. That's what we're talking about.
as we come to the end of time and the beginning of time with all of the loss and cancer and death and divorce and brokenness and suffering and sin. Aren't you just a little bit concerned that there's not enough good to outweigh the bad? That's what happens in this text. So let's pray and ask God to bless our study of his word this morning. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank you and I praise you for your word and your Holy Spirit. I ask by your kindness, God, that you would take the click out of this microphone. That we might hear. That we might be moved. Father, there are those in this room who are so recently bereaved. It's hard to imagine in some ways that things will ever be good again. I pray by the kindness of your Holy Spirit that you will lift our chin and look in our eyes and remind us who you are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. When I was in Houston, I had a woman sit in my office and say, I couldn't even sing. I couldn't even sing. What she was describing is, is that she had lost a baby nine months into her pregnancy. Nine months. Goes for a final checkup. And the heartbeat's not there. She said there are no words for devastation that deep. But she also said that when she would finally get herself back into church, she couldn't open her mouth. She couldn't even sing. She had to just listen to the voices all around her cry out and praise and confess and thank and worship God. She couldn't do it herself. She couldn't even sing because she wasn't sure that there was ever going to be good again, that there was ever going to be enough good moments to make up for the bad moments. And so she would sit there and worship and listen to the voices of around, around her, trying to let them convince her to sing. That's the problem we find here in Revelation 4. It's this beautiful and dramatic scene. Like it said, there are creatures there above and on the earth and below the earth. There are millions of angels there. There are millions of angels. There are people so far as you can see. It's this dramatic moment all of history has come to hold its breath and wonder at the question, will it all have been worth it? And let's look at how John answers this for us in Revelation. Will a life this battered by suffering have been worth it? So first we come to the problem. The problem is that the loss is so great Look with me again, please, in verses 1 through 4. Sorry, airplane mode kicked me off the internet. I found it. Thank you for your patience. 
Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Now, as we look through this passage in Revelation, there are things that are obvious to us and there are things that are less obvious to us. And I'm not going to address all of them in this short amount of time. I'm just going to hit the main ones for you to get the sense of what's going on here. But what is this scroll? It's this dramatic scene and everybody's waiting and wanting someone to open the scroll. What is the scroll? Some people have said it's the Lamb's book of life. It's, it's anyone who puts their trust in Jesus. It's their name written on a scroll and no one can access it. No one can get into it because no one is powerful enough. No one is worthy enough. But we get from the context that there's more going on than the Lamb's book of life. In fact, the the people of God are already there. They're already present, represented by the 24 elders, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of Jesus represent all of the people that have come to faith in Christ. They're already there. And so what's more likely is it's talking about the scroll, the, the action plan to make all things new the action plans to take the worst parts of the world and to make it okay again, to make it good again, the the action plan to take all the bad moments and see if the good moments can outweigh them. And no human and no Israelite can do it. You see, they're, they're, they're poised for this beautiful moment. John thinks this is the moment of moments. He's poised, and then all of a sudden, he looks, and no one is found in heaven and on earth and under the earth. No one can make sense of this. And you felt that too in your own life. You have thought at times that things are so difficult, things are so dark, that no one is ever going to be able to make sense of this to you. Whatever happens forward, it's not going to be enough to erase the past. And that's what John's starting to realize is for someone to make sense of the story and to accomplish the redemption of the story that no one can be found on earth. And so if you have felt that, if you have felt that sense that I've been in so much pain, I've been so discouraged, I've been so low, I've been so anxious, I'm not sure that there are going to be more good days ahead than bad. That's what John's experiencing. That maybe it all wasn't worth it. And so John teaches us that the right response is to weep. John says, and I began to weep loudly, or some translations say, I began to weep and weep because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John does not see that no one is able to open the scroll and look into it and start coming up with philosophies or explanations or platitudes which make it okay. He weeps. It's the right response to living in a world like this with the thought that no one could redeem it, the thought that no one could make it better, the thought that no one could make all of this worthwhile. That thought should make us weep. He doesn't respond with explanations. He weeps and he dignifies the weeping and the doubt and the struggle in you. 
When you weep, your tears are valid. They're welcomed because a story like this, this much depth, this much complication, to consider for a moment that it would all end and that the, good, the bad would outweigh the good, it drives you to weep. So I encourage you, don't explain away your sadnesses. Don't explain away other people's sadnesses. Weep with them. Weep with those who weep and weep yourself. Knox and I were talking recently and he's had a friend go through a whole lot of stuff in his friend's personal life and his friend is really heartbroken and Knox was sitting with me in the car and we were talking and he said, Dad, it's just too sad. It's too many sad things for somebody this young. It's too sad. And even in that moment, I was tempted to start explaining why ultimately it would be okay, but that's not what he needed. What he needed me to do is to say, yes, it is so sad, and I'm heartbroken for him, and I don't like it one bit. I'm sad for him. And that's what we need to learn to do with one another. Can you imagine if this was the place that you could come and weep, and that someone would put a hand on your shoulder and weep with you? They wouldn't explain it away and they wouldn't make friends with the problems of your life. Instead, they would stand there and say, it's really hard sometimes, isn't it? It's really heartbreaking. Sometimes we lose and we lose huge. Sometimes our relationships are shattered. Sometimes things fall apart. And we hurt each other when this place can't be the kind of place where we weep together, where we weep ourselves and we weep with one another. The right response John has is to weep. And in his weeping, it validates yours. It says, you're right. If this is the end of the story, you should weep. If there is no one on heaven and on earth and under the earth that can break the scroll, no one who can turn all of this into something good, the right response is to weep. When I was in elementary school, my sister and I would come home after school and we would go get a snack and we would sit down and we would watch two straight hours of television. The first, straight, first hour was Saved by the Bell. I don't regret any one moment of that. The second hour, which I could never make it all the way through, was Full House. Now look, if you love Full House, that's fine. But it was always too tidy for me. And this is what I mean. At the end of each episode, whatever had happened, there was always this music that would come on in the background. And Danny, played by the morally upright Bob Saget, <laughs> Danny would come in to instruct his daughters. And there would be perfect music and a perfect little lesson, and it would tie a bow on every problem in the world. And even as a little person, I knew pain and difficulty and problems are not that tidy. And you know that too. So weep. Weep. It doesn't make you less than. It means you understand what this world was made for and instead what it is now. It, it shows that you understand that we were made for life and relationship and beauty and truth and grace and that we weren't meant for this death 
this cancer, this ruptured relationship, this COVID, we weren't meant for it. Your weeping dignifies those who struggle and weep. So weep for your stuff. Don't explain it away. And weep with those who weep. But what's the solution? You see, he's looking in heaven and on earth and under the earth for someone who can make it right, someone who can take the scroll of all time and, and take all of the complexities and difficulties and problems and brokenness in them and actually turn it into a good story, a story worth reading again and again and singing over. Who can do it? And he weeps because he doesn't see anyone who can do it. And then there's the solution. The solution, the public vindication of the lion. Look with me in verses 5 through 7. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. The lion in the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. Do you see it? The elder says, weep no more. You've come to this big moment with the millions of angels and all of God's people and all of the living creatures. You've come to this moment and don't weep because the story's about to get really good the one that we've been waiting for since Genesis, the one that we've been waiting for since King David, the one that we've been waiting for since John the Baptist, he's come, he's come and he's made all things new. And now instead of things going wrong, they'll go right. And now instead of sin, there'll be righteousness. And now instead of pain, there'll be healing. The one we've waited for has come and now righteousness will rule and justice will rule. The one that we've been waiting for, the lion, has arrived. The reason that that's supposed to encourage you is when you go through your life and you feel in those dark moments that things are out of control. This text says they're really not. It feels like it's out of control, but it's really not. It takes us to... Genesis 50, 20, which we talk a lot about a lot, that what Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. The kind of God that we serve is so gloriously powerful and beautiful and holy, but not just that. He can take even things that are broken and messy and sinful and full of suffering, and he can use those things to reverse the pain and actually make the story more beautiful than what it was. That's what he's saying here. He's saying that the story is actually better. It's stronger. It's more beautiful because he has worked it through something that was complex and difficult and full of sin. It's actually a better story because he's been able to take the bad and through the bad bring good. That he's that He's that powerful, he's that godly, he's that glorious that the things that you hate about your story, you will someday lift your voice and worship him for. And the things that you love about your story, you will one day sing and worship him for. That you'll see through the good and through the bad that no matter what it did, it brought you into this throne room for you to worship. He's saying righteousness will win out. That this king, he will get it right. 
He will get it done. He will be what no one else has managed to be. And the reason that's important to you is because your whole life you will be burdened with this question of do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes to get the right job, find the right spouse, become the right kind of person, have some significance, and ultimately, slowly, you will begin to understand it'll never be enough. And it says the one who comes amidst the crowd, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he will get it right. He will get it done. He will be what no one else has managed to be. But how? How will he do it? It's nice to know theoretically that no one can open the scroll and so it's okay that we weep and yet someone can't open the scroll and he's going to make it right. But how will he make it right? Look in the text with me, please. This is coming through verse 5. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. You see in this great dramatic moment at the end of time and at really the beginning of time, you see this unedited portion. Might have been better if they had dusted up, airbrushed this moment where the lamb would be uh, perfectly clean and no blood on him again. But God doesn't do that. At the end of time, and at the beginning of time, when we turn to see the one who is worthy to open the scroll, we will turn to see a lamb who was slain. And the import of that for you is that God is not ashamed of the son's sacrifice on your behalf. God is quite proud of his son's sacrifice on your behalf because it brought him the children that he loves so dearly. And so rather than push away the pain and push away the slainness out of the story, he puts it front and center and says the victory is through the loss. And he undoes all of the ways that we think about life. You see, he actually uses death, which if you remember from the garden was the bad news. Adam and Eve sin, and now they will die. It's the bad news. And he actually uses what the devil tried to use as the bad news, and he moves towards it and takes death and makes it the most important thing because it brings life to God's people who are standing there. He doesn't dust off the lamb. He says, I'm going to take the worst thing, and I'm going to use its worst part and transform it. And the point for you is the things in your life that you hate, you will someday worship God for in heaven. You see, in God's economy, the weak is actually the strong. Death is actually life. First is actually the last. The greatest is actually the least. Up is down. Loss is gain. The sufferings that are causing you to limp now are controlled by God. Let me say that again. The sufferings that are, are, can feel like they're undoing you right now, they're causing you to limp, are controlled by God they're there on purpose and for your good. And not just the suffering, even your sin. Even your sin, if God wanted to take it away in a moment, those habits that you are so embarrassed of, if God wanted to take it away in a moment, he could. 
Even your sin, he sometimes leaves in your life so that it will deepen your dependence on Jesus and deepen your understanding of how much love you have in the Father. So whether it's your sin or your suffering, it's that it's there on purpose. It's there by God and it's for your good and for his glory, whatever you face. That's what I want you to see. Now, you won't always know what it means. When you have a sin that you can't get rid of, you won't always be able to discern exactly why he's leaving it there. When you have a wound that you've begged for him to take from you, you won't always be able to discern exactly why it's there and what he's trying to teach you. And you certainly shouldn't try and discern it for others. That's not the point. The point is, is that someone knows why it's there. The person who put it there knows why it's there and that it's for your good and for his glory. There's this glorious passage in Acts that said, this man was handed over to you, this is Jesus, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. It's this glorious mystery that no matter what trouble we go and get ourselves in, God is ultimately still sovereign over it and transforming it to restore us. I don't know what you in this room are facing. It might be hurt or unclear or infuriating. Whatever you're facing might fill you with resentment or bewilderment. But God says, you can rest on me because I win through losing. He says, I know what it's like to lose. And if I know what it's like to lose, me, your Savior, how much more am I going to care for you who have experienced loss? Charles Spurgeon once said this, I have learned to kiss the wave that slams me into the rock of ages. I've learned to kiss the wave that slams me into the rock of ages. It's been said before, God uses things he hates to accomplish what he loves. So you see, your weeping is dignified because John weeps. But you see this lion lamb comes and is able to open the scroll. He's able to make all that is wrong summed up in death and sin and suffering. He's able to take all that is wrong and actually make it right. And so what is the response? The last part, we'll finish here, is to worship. Worship, that's what we're talking about. To proclaim and believe, even when it's hard to believe, and even when you're struggling to believe, to proclaim and to believe that I can trust in God. I can trust in the lamb who has been slain, that he is worthy, that he can take the darkest parts of my story and transform them ultimately to something that I will be thankful for on that great day. And he says, the only response to someone who can make the bad news good is worship. There's three different songs here. Did you see them? The first song is in verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain in your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That, by the way, is why our churches should be full of diversity, ethnic, socioeconomic, our backgrounds. It should be full of all people. 
tribe, language, people, and nation, for you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The first one is about what the lamb has done. Look at the second song. It's what the lamb deserves. Worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory. It's the, the lamb is worth all of it, and this is what he is worth. And then lastly, everything joins in. Listen to this. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. We're talking about great white sharks and blue whales and you and me and angels singing to God. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. What worship is for you now is for you to remind yourself that in your best day and in your worst day, that God will have made it worth it. That there is not one thing in heaven that you will miss because of your life here on earth. There will be no loss. There will be no, no sense of, I wish I had gotten this. That all of it will have added up dramatically and gloriously for you to say, worthy is the lamb. You see, the response to what God has done is to sing. And I want to show you one more thing too. Look in verse 8. And when the lamb had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp in golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. God takes your prayers, puts them in golden bowls, and in his presence, it's the sweet-smelling smell. There aren't going to be sermons in heaven. You're like, thank God, hallelujah. There are going to be your prayers. And what you're supposed to get from that is that God hears you. When you cry out for him and saying, I can't do it anymore, I can't take anymore, I'm not going to make through this, God's saying, I hear you. I hear you so much, it means so much to me that I'm storing these to be incense in the great room because you have held on, you have held on and believed that I can make this sadness come untrue. He's saying, you can pray and I'll listen. And then he says, sing. And that's what I want you to do in this room and out there in your life at work and play with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with your family, with your friends, I want you to sing, to lift your voice. What you're doing is saying, I know when I add it all up that I serve the kind of God who will make all things new, who will bring restoration, who will bring good, that even as hard as my story looks right now, that it will have been worth it. And so when you sing, you're saying it will have been worth it, not because of me, but because of him. When I lead worship on Easter mornings, a lot of times the song Crown Him with Many Crowns comes. And there's a part in that song that reminds me of just this. And every time my voice goes out and I'm singing it, God is so powerful because people on Easter Sunday, they're dressed up, they're ready to go, they're ready to roll, they're ready to sing with their voice, they're ready to say, He is risen, He is risen indeed. They, they need a day to be reminded of that great day. And it says this, crown him the Lord of years, the potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime, meaning it's so good there aren't words for it. And then it says this, all hail, 
Redeemer. Hail for him who died for me. Your praise shall never, never fail throughout eternity. You see, worship is our opportunity to take that great day and set it right in the middle of our stories right now and say, it will have been worth it because he is worthy. Let's pray. Father, you know the losses in this room. The sin that your son covered as well. And we are tempted to think, I'm not sure if all of this will have been worth it. I thank you for our Redeemer. The Lamb who has been slain. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. Who can not only make sense of our stories, but transform them into something that we will all worship Him for. Would you help us to live joyfully out of that reality even today? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.